the Old Testament and to uh, the Pentateuch in general, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. And now we're going to try to start walking our way through the first five books a little more carefully, beginning with uh, sort of an overview of Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis. And Genesis is a good place to start, not just because it's the first book of the Bible, but also because it's a really important book of the Bible. And amazing as well. It's a book that gets deeper the more you read it. I know that uh, sometimes people give the Bible a hard time, and especially uh, books like Genesis, but I always wonder when they do that, how carefully have they actually read it? Because uh, I think even from just a purely worldly perspective, it's amazing, amazing literature. In fact, I heard somebody say recently that uh, if God didn't write the Bible, it had to be someone as smart as God. Those are your two choices, either uh, God or someone as smart as God. And he was being silly, of course, but I think you'll definitely see that if you study Genesis humbly, uh, because the more you read it, the more you find. And uh, it's like there's always more there. It's not just a book that you can read once. No matter how many times you've uh, read the stories in Genesis or heard them, they still surprise you and have so much to teach you and actually only will get better and more profound the harder you study them. The Word of God is uh, much more interesting the more you read it. The, The less you read it and the less you study it, the less interesting it is. But the more you read it and the more you study it, the more fascinating it becomes. And Genesis, that's certainly true of Genesis. Genesis is amazing and important. And I I know that almost uh, every pastor says that about every book they preach. They usually begin by saying, this is a really, really important book. uh, Because they all are. But Genesis is definitely, definitely important. If you think about trying to understand the Bible, say you uh, hadn't really read the Bible before and you um, were like, I want to try to, I want to try to get this book, and uh, I'm going to start in the epistles because the letters seem like, of the New Testament, seem like they're probably the most straightforward and applicable, but when you start reading those letters, you understand pretty quickly that if you're going to figure out what's going on, you have to read the book of Acts because uh, Acts tells you who exactly you're reading about and uh, what is happening. But then if you pick up the book of Acts, you begin to read about the early church and you realize, you know, I need to study the Gospels because the book of Acts is clearly building on what happened there. And then you sit down to read the Gospels and you find out that they're constantly quoting and alluding to these prophets in the Old Testament. And so you decide that if you're going to understand what's going on in the Gospels, you need to understand their message first, but when you begin to read the prophets, you find out that they're preachers as well, and the books that they're preaching most often are the first five books of the Bible, and especially Deuteronomy. And so you start reading Deuteronomy, but the moment you start reading Deuteronomy, you realize there's a big, long story about Israel that leads up to it. So perhaps you go back to Exodus through Numbers, and yet, of course, you find out very quickly that to understand Exodus through Numbers and what God's doing through Israel you have to first understand the book of Genesis. So if you want to understand the Bible, it's good to begin at the beginning. Genesis is truly foundational for everything else. And if we just stop and take a moment, it's not really hard to see that, right? What are some things that make it obvious 
that we need to know and understand the book of Genesis. Can you think of anything that makes it obvious that we have to know and understand the book of Genesis? It's first. It's first. Yeah. That's one in the beginning. That's kind of, yeah. So it, it explains the covenant. Yes, that's right. Where did Israel come from? Yeah. Yeah, so the whole Bible is about a solution, and Genesis tells you what the problem is. It shows you where the problem started. Yeah, so there are a number of reasons that we can think of very quickly why Genesis is important. One of them, of course, is what Isaiah said, the placement. It's the first book of the Bible, and we know that um, the order the books are in in your Bible is not inspired, but every Bible has Genesis at the beginning. Whenever uh, people have ordered the books of the Bible, they've always put Genesis at the beginning, which seems kind of obvious to us, but technically it didn't have to be that way because it's not, uh, it's not, the order is not inspired. And it's kind of interesting to think about, maybe you can do this sometime, how would you read the Bible differently if another book came first? And it wouldn't change everything, but it would have some impact. So like if Exodus came before Genesis, that would that would maybe impact the way you thought about Exodus or Genesis. Or if Job was first in the Bible. Job is probably uh, the oldest book in the Bible. Um, so if Job was first in the Bible, that's actually a fun one to think about. Job, if you put Job first, Job tells you why you need a Bible. Um, but throughout uh, church history, Genesis has uh, consistently been put at the beginning for a reason, almost to say, Okay, if you're going to understand what you're going to read in this whole book, there are some things you're going to have to understand first, and this is where you should start. In fact, the title in our Bible is Genesis. That's the English title. And what does Genesis mean? It means it's the Greek word for origin. And it actually was, uh, there was a longer phrase that was the origin of the world. That was the original title for Genesis in the Greek. The Hebrew title is different. It comes from the first words in Genesis. So they had a, a habit when they uh, gave titles to books in the ancient Near East, they would just use the first words. And so the first words in uh, Genesis are in the beginning. And so that's, that's the, the Hebrew title of this book. But either way, those titles have to do with how things got started. And that's a key word for Genesis. If you want to sort of have a word to help you remember what Genesis is about, you could say Genesis is about beginnings. And we all know that beginnings are important. Whenever you give a, a message, most people usually think hard about what they're going to say at the beginning. We talk about the importance of first impressions. So uh, beginnings are important, and Genesis has a lot of beginnings. What does Genesis tell us the beginning of? What are some things? The universe, yeah, that's kind of big. Uh, what else? Man. We're glad that it tells us about that. What else? Sin, that's for sure. Our problems, we said that one. Judgment. The gospel, God's gospel plan. Israel. And so that's a lot. If you just think about Genesis, what it tells us, the content, the information Genesis gives us, 
It's clearly important. What are some things that we learn about in Genesis? Who God is? What's that? It's not good to be alone. Hey, is that a Deb? You heard that? This constant uh, desire for relationship. Okay, God's God's uh, a transcendent God, but an imminent, imminent God, a God who desires relationship. It gives us our first introduction to God and what He's like, what the world's designed to be like, where our problems came from, how God's going to overcome the cursed, where to be looking for for salvation. It shows us God's ability to keep his promises in spite of man's uh, rebellion. It gives us categories for understanding the work of Christ. So when Paul wanted to talk about who Jesus is, uh, he went back to Genesis. And he talked about, he contrasted Jesus with Adam. And he said, okay, Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, Or when Paul talks about justification by faith alone, he goes back to Genesis and talks about Abraham. So the New Testament would be hard to understand without Genesis, and so would would the rest of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament. It would be very hard to understand without Genesis. uh, For example, Exodus begins with names from Genesis, uh, or even if you're just looking at these books without Genesis, you'll be asking, why is God doing so much with Israel? You would wonder, what's Israel doing in Egypt? You would not understand uh, why God's paying attention to Israel, because at the beginning of Exodus, it gives the reason as being something to do with what happened in Genesis. It would mess us up to read the Mosaic Covenant without the Abrahamic Covenant, wouldn't it? It would, uh, it would be confusing to read the Mosaic Covenant without the Abrahamic Covenant, even in terms of how salvation works. And uh, the promises God made to Abraham form the basis for the rest of the story, really. God's showing how he kept those promises to Abraham. And so you can see this is a big book. It's placement, it's title, it's content. Maybe one more way we can get a sense of how important Genesis is, though, is by thinking about the way the Bible works, how God has designed the Old Testament to teach us. So obviously, God sees the beginning and he sees the end. And so God's not just reacting. He's, he has got something he's doing, and he's got somewhere he's taking us. And so as he writes the Bible, God has a strategy. And even as he orchestrates history, God has a strategy. He's got, and one of the things he's doing is uh, he has a strategy for teaching us what we need to know about who he is, who we are, and how salvation works. And one way God goes about teaching us is by providing kind of the big picture first that will help us understand some of the details later. So you know how maybe when you watch a movie that's a sequel and maybe it's a really complicated story, someone might give you the big picture, the backstory, so that you can understand what you're watching. And in the Bible, that's Genesis. Uh, as you read the Old Testament, you're going to find out, you're going to read all these individual stories And some of them are interesting, and some of them are strange. I was reading about that axe head, you know, Elijah the other day, or was it Elisha, excuse me, uh, with the axe head. And you read these stories, and you're like, I don't know what that means. (laughs) It's funny. feels, it's interesting. But they're all connected back to a bigger story. And if you don't see the connection to the bigger story, then the individual stories are going to make a whole lot less sense when you read them. And the big story in the Old Testament is built on what happens in Genesis. In fact, the big story the Bible tells. So Genesis, as someone said, provides the context for the story you're going to read about in the rest of the Bible. Um, 
the plan, the problem, how God's going to solve it, some of the key promises, key characters, key places, and key concepts. And so if you think about the way you teach math, say um, the way they teach math at school, they, they take about 12 years or more to teach math, and it's progressive. So year one is different than the year two, and year two is different than year 12. So it's not always the same exact math class every year in school. Obviously, you move forward as you teach, but still there's a plan. And each year, you're building on concepts from previous years. And so you don't start every year when you're teaching a math class absolutely fresh. That would be a bad way of teaching. And of course, if we're smart enough to do that with math, God is going to do that in the Bible with a subject even more important than math with salvation and his character. And one of the ways that he does that is through these patterns we find in the Bible. Year one, it's like he introduces us to a pattern that he's going to use in year 12. In other words, one of the ways God teaches in the Bible is something happens and then it happens again later, but differently, but in a similar way. And the repetition begins to establish a pattern that's going to help you understand who God is and what God's doing better. And this is maybe a little different, or maybe it's really obvious, because I've been thinking about it for a while now. But here's an illustration I heard that helped me. So say you're watching a movie nowadays. There are patterns in movies that directors play off of that we don't even really think about because we just know that's the way it works. And when it works differently, it's surprising to us, and we notice the differences. The most obvious one I could think of is uh, where certain music plays in a movie, and you know what's going to happen just because of the music that's playing. But there are others. So I was reading somewhere this week where someone was talking about Western movies. And he was saying, imagine it's like a 1,000 years in the future. And archaeologists are digging around in Hollywood, and they find this um, old film vault with all these Western movies. And then they give those Western movies to some film professor, and he spends all summer watching them, and he notices something. In 11 of the 12 movies, the sheriff, Hero, there's a guy with like a star, he has this amazing ability to pull his gun out faster than anyone else. No matter where he's confronted, no matter who confronts him, he's always able to pull his gun out of his holster and fire before other people can, even if they're already poised with their own weapon. And again, just think, if you never saw a Western movie and you keep seeing this pattern in these films, how would you make sense of that? Because there are different options. Maybe you'd be like, oh, this must have been a superior race among the humans, and they're just really quick with their hands or something. But then in the 12th movie, let's say there's a sheriff with an injured arm, and so instead of a pistol, he's got a rifle that he carries slung over his back. Now, if you were watching the 12th movie by itself and you hadn't seen any of the other 11, you would not know what's going to happen. But if you've already watched all 11, then you've been prepared. And you know, okay, this is a little different, but it's a variation or on a theme or a pattern that you're familiar with. And so you 
pretty much know what's going to happen. Um, and of course, nowadays, we recognize that without even thinking about it. That's part of why we uh, like watching movies and westerns. It's like a roller coaster. It's scary, but we know how it's going to end. It's, it's safe, unless you're watching like a European movie where they like their movies to end so sad all the time. But uh, Americans, we like our movies to end happy, usually. And so much of our pleasure in watching westerns is we know the hero's going to win in the end. And it's the repetitive pattern that teaches us that. When we see that pattern, we don't even really have to worry about the details. We know what it means. And when we see one that's a little different, we don't ask, I wonder why does he have the rifle over his shoulder or what's going to happen because we're familiar with the pattern. And we see, okay, here this sheriff is the underdog and he's in a worse situation than those other sheriffs, but he's going to win. I know he's going to win, even though he doesn't have the advantages the normal sheriff has. He has a disadvantage but he's a sheriff in a Western movie, and so I know he's gonna overcome. And this becomes the underdog version of basically the same story. You already know he's gonna win. He's just gonna win in spite of this disadvantage. And so this is part of why the New Testament writers knew that Jesus had to rise on the third day. Because there's a, and they made a big deal out of this. They're always like, he had to rise on the third day because the scripture says. And then you're like, well, where does it say that? And there's maybe one, prophecy that's really vague and you're like but it doesn't they made such a big deal out of this so like he had to rise on the third day why do they keep saying that when there's just one prophecy that you can kind of read different ways and you realize no it's because this is how they read the bible there's a they they looked for patterns and there's a pattern in the old testament of god stepping in to do big things for his seed on the third day you see the seed in trouble and God has made promises to deliver when he's going to do it. And it's the third day over and over. So like when Abraham went up to sacrifice Isaac, what day was it? It was the third day. And since that's from the book of Genesis already. And since that's part of how God teaches us in the Bible, Genesis is obviously very important because we're at the beginning where all the part patterns are getting started that are going to be played off of. So like I said, it's a foundational book. We need, to know, we need to know Genesis really well and have these patterns and stories in our mind when we read the rest of the Bible, because a lot of the rest of the Bible is going to be riffing off of things that we discover in Genesis. And we can start getting to know Genesis with some of the background material that will help us think about what we're reading. So anytime you read a book for the first time and you want to learn, there are some questions that you're going to be asking that will help you understand what you're reading. Like, first of all, you, you want to know the author who wrote the book of Genesis, which we talked about last time, but I think the author of Genesis is essentially Moses. There might have been a few tweaks or uh, explanations by inspired editors later, but believers for thousands of years have thought this book was written by Moses, Jewish people, the early church. And there's more controversy over that now, but uh, that's what people have thought for thousands of years. And... Uh, Jesus, when Jesus talked about this part of the Bible, he agreed that Moses wrote it. And I, I never like to argue with somebody who rose from the dead. You know, so, um, so Moses is basically uh, the author. And that's helpful because it helps us understand the setting. So what was going on when the, this book was, was written? And that's a really important question when you study the Bible. Because the books of the Bible were written for different reasons. And so Moses, what's he doing in Genesis? He's preaching. 
if I could share one thing with you that I think would really enliven the Old Testament for you, that I think a lot of people miss, is that the Old Testament history is real history, but it's not just history. It's proclamation. It's proclamation. It's a way of preaching. So kings, what are they doing? Those guys are prophets. The people who wrote kings or the person who wrote kings was a prophet. Moses is a prophet. He's telling these stories about what happened in history for a reason. And understanding the setting can help you understand the reason. He's making an argument. I sometimes call Genesis the Old Testament's Old Testament. Because Moses is writing about things that happened long before the people to whom he's writing were alive. And so the end of Genesis is like 400 years before they were born. And some of the other events were thousands and thousands of years before they were born. And so they are reading this kind of like we're reading the Old Testament. And Moses is taking them to the past to help them understand what God's done and do in the present and in the future. And they needed help for sure because what was the challenge they were facing as he was writing? What do we know about these people to whom Moses was writing? What is going on in their life? Well, they were a new nation. They had been formerly enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. They were kind of homeless. They had been wandering around in the wilderness for a long time. This is probably the second generation of Israelites that he's gathering all this material together for. He, he wrote the things down at different times. But by the time we get to Deuteronomy, this is definitely the second generation who Moses is going to command to cross the Jordan River and fight a war and kill people and be God's instrument of judgment. And so you can think about how frightening that would have been for them because uh, they uh, knew their parents weren't willing to do it. <laughs> and they knew their parents were really scared about doing it. And so uh, put yourself in Moses' shoes because he knows he's not going to be with them. Abner Chow, he says, think about this question. How do you convince people that they need to cross the Jordan River and go to the other side and fight this battle? Well, Moses wrote these books. That's how he did it. This is what the Pentateuch does. It shows them this is who your God is. Genesis through Deuteronomy is like one of the greatest motivational speeches ever. This is the God you serve. You have nothing to fear. It shows God's greatness, God's program, and how you ought to live in this moment and why. It's kind of like there's the famous story about those bricklayers. I think I maybe have told it before, but uh, there's a story about these three bricklayers who uh, were rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral after uh, the great fire in 1666 that leveled London. And there was a famous architect who came along these three bricklayers, and he saw them working. One was crouched, one was half standing, and one was standing tall. And uh, to the first bricklayer, the architect asked the question, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? And the bricklayer said, I'm a bricklayer. I'm working hard laying bricks to feed my family. The second bricklayer, he asked, and that bricklayer responded, I'm a builder. I'm building a wall. But the third bricklayer, uh, the one who was working the hardest and standing the tallest, when asked the question, what are you doing, replied, I'm a cathedral builder. I'm building a great cathedral to the almighty God. And you can see the difference. The difference is that the third person saw himself as part of a bigger story. And in Genesis, Moses is trying to help Israel, motivate Israel to act by showing them their part in the bigger story, helping them catch a glimpse 
of what God is planning to do through them. And how does Genesis do that in particular? Uh, We've talked about the author, the setting. Let's think about some of the major themes in Genesis. And uh, we may touch on these more as we get to look at Genesis more closely later, uh, but it's good to get them out there at least, and maybe we won't get back to them. But we'll uh, talk about a few of them today, and maybe um, we'll get to more the next time. But one of the key themes in Genesis, if you're going to say, what is Genesis about? What What are the key themes? One of the key themes in Genesis is the kingdom of God. And so it's a little funny to say that because we don't have that phrase in Genesis. But if we look at Genesis 1, we definitely get the uh, idea, the basic building blocks that help us understand what the kingdom of God means. And so Genesis 1 is like a picture of the world and how it was designed to function before the fall. So this is like looking at the blueprints of a building before it's been destroyed. Or this week, I I, uh, was looking at a picture of Herod's castle in Caesarea, um, and it was destroyed. It was just ruins. Um, Apparently, he made this incredible castle right on the sea with a a pool right in the middle. And uh, there was no, it was was by the sea, but it was not near any freshwater, but the pool was freshwater. He had slaves bring in for him or something like that. But imagine a picture of that castle before it was ruined. That's kind of what we have in Genesis 1, a picture of the world before it was ruined. And so you think about Genesis 1, what's going on? You have God creating the world and bringing everything into order and making it this perfect, beautiful place. And then on the sixth day, he's creating man in his image, and he gives man the responsibility of exercising dominion and authority in this world as his representative. And so what's the the picture? The picture is of God as this ultimate king creating man and entering into a relationship with man and calling on man to represent him as a mini king, you might say, in this world. And of course, we know man doesn't. He's given a test. Will you trust God enough to rule on his behalf? And man doesn't, and he gives his authority over to Satan. And after that, we find man trying to build his own kingdom apart from God, which culminates in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel or Babylon. And one way we know that's an important theme is by looking at how the Bible ends. So the Bible begins with this picture of a kingdom and God as king creating this perfect, beautiful world for him to dwell with man and giving man the responsibility of representing him. That's how the Bible begins. But then we fast forward through the movie, thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years, all the way to the end of the movie in Revelation. And what happens in the end of the movie is that we find God reversing what happened in Genesis 1 through 11. So in Genesis 1, you have creation, and then you have God lighting up the world, and then you have man ruling over the world, and then you have old Eden, and of course, then you have the curse. What you have in Revelation 21 is no curse, then you have a new Eden, then you have man ruling again, and then you have God lighting up the world, and then you have a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. So beginning and ending. (laughs) The end is a reversal of the beginning. One of my professors talks about how God resolves the anti-kingdom agenda as well. He says, you have creation at the beginning, and then you have Satan active in Genesis 3, and then you have this big judgment on the whole world in Genesis 6, and then you have Babel or Babylon. And then you turn to Revelation, and you have Babel or Babylon, then you have a worldwide judgment, and then you have Satan being confined or thrown in a prison, 
And then you have a new creation. So kingdom of God is an important theme beginning in Genesis 1. We know that it's important because of the way the Bible begins and the way the Bible ends. Along with that theme of kingdom, you have the hope of a future king doing what Adam failed to do. So one of the themes is kingdom. Another right along with that would be king, the theme of, uh, of a future king. And so again, say you go back to Genesis 1. We see God making this kingdom, and there's this pattern. And God said, and God saw, and it was. And then all of a sudden, in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, there's an interruption to the pattern, and God starts speaking poetry, basically, and talking about the creation of man and using the same words over and over and over again. And so he's defining us, and he says in verse 27 that he created man in his own image. To be human is to be made in the image of God. And one thing that means, one thing being made in God's image means or has to do with is our our function as human beings. So image of God was a phrase that they actually used in Moses' day for kings. So they talked about kings being made in the image of God or being the image of God. And so the term, as one scholar explains, the image of God in the culture and language of the ancient Near East would have communicated two ideas. That person's a king, and that person's a son of God. And so nations like Egypt would have used this term for kings and thought of the king as the pharaoh as the image of God because he had a unique relationship with God that nobody else had, according to them. He was the son of God, and he had a unique relationship with the world as a result. He was the ruler of this world for the God. And Genesis says that's all of us. So Genesis is really unique because most of the other religions around uh, Moses were using religion to uh, actually protect those in power and would say, this king, we have to really honor this king because he is unique. He's made in the image of God. He's the only one made in the image of God. He's given this special responsibility by God. And God actually says, no, that's not just the one king. That's actually how God created all of us. Um, Maybe to illustrate, uh, another way this term was used, kings were the image of God, and kings had their own images. So kings had their own statues. And so the statue was the image of the king. And what the king would do in the ancient Near East, if he would uh, take over an area, he would set up his image in that area. And one scholar explains the setting up of the king's statue or image was his way of proclaiming, this country belongs to me. The image meant that he was the ruler of that area. And so in Genesis 1, man is set in the middle of creation as God's statue. He is evidence that God is the Lord of creation, but he's not just supposed to stand there. As God's steward, he also exerts his rule as a representative. And so man was created for this kind of kingship. And the key to him ruling well was trusting God. And then, of course, he didn't, and the curse came. But Genesis tells us there's hope because God's going to make that happen again. And one way it does that is through these promises of a specific royal offspring of Abraham. And that's probably the most important way. 
In Genesis, as we look through Genesis, God promises Abraham that kings are going to come through from him. And that promise of kingships connected back to this big promise in Genesis 3.15 of the one who would overcome the curse. But another way Joseph, uh, another way Genesis gives us hope of a king, a future king, who will reverse the curse is through the story of Joseph. So this has been just kind of mind-blowing for me this week, and I'm not going to do it justice. But a lot of times as we think about the book of Genesis, we uh, think about it as part of a series of books. And so we don't think of it as its own story. And uh, that's good because it was written as a series of, part of a series of books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But it's kind of fun to go back and think about Genesis as its own book. And if you think about Genesis as telling a story, think about the way it begins and the way it ends. So it begins and ends with two characters. Adam, it begins with Adam, and it ends with Joseph. And if you think about it, do this sometime, Joseph succeeds basically everywhere Adam fails. Joseph, I think, is the anti-Adam. He is, he is a picture of the solution to the problem. So Adam is given this responsibility to rule. He won't trust God, even in the garden. He, list, he listens to the woman, and what happens? Curse. There's problems with the ground. It's hard for him to get food. There's problems in his family. People are killing each other. And there's problems in the world. The world doesn't know God and is judged. So now what about Joseph? Listen to the way one author puts it. After Adam, we've got all these threats to God's plan, and we see these threats on full display at the beginning of the Joseph story. There's family division. Uh, in Genesis 6, you've got this weird thing going on with intermarriage, and in the Joseph story, you've got the seed not being willing to keep the line going. Read the story of Judah and Tamar. Um, you've got problems with the land as a result of man's sin at the beginning, and then you've got this famine in the Joseph story as well. That's creating major havoc in the world. But what happens? Joseph sold into slavery, so it's like he's sent into exile, experiencing something that's similar to Adam being cast out of the garden. But while he's there, what does he do? While he's in the wilderness, you know, he's in exile. He trusts God, and he refuses to listen to a woman who tempts him because he, uh, he doesn't want to sin against God. And he's stripped of his clothing at that point, which is the opposite of Adam. Adam is clothed after he sinned, and Joseph is stripped. But he continues to trust God, and God ends up re-robing Joseph and exalting Joseph to the position of a mini-king, where he's ruling on someone's behalf. Remember how Pharaoh gives him the signet ring and clothes him with these beautiful garments and then sends him out through all of Egypt and gives him all this authority? And as Joseph exercises that authority, what, what happens? It's like he reverses the curse. He helps people not experience the consequences of the famine. He brings his own family together. This is actually, there's a really cool thing in the Joseph story. Joseph is crying all the time. And uh, there's the sequence of tears. And the way it works is there's like, um, it's almost like the first one and the last crying are similar. The second one, the second to last crying are similar. The third one and the third third to last crying are similar events. And the middle one is, is the different one. 
And that's when Joseph is crying as his uh, family is being brought to bed. His brothers are being reconciled. So it's sort of a, a way of Moses getting you to focus in on one of the major, major uh, parts of the story, one of the major aspects of the story, which is that Joseph, God used Joseph to sort of reverse the Cain and Abel story. Um, Jacob, his father, comes, and what does Jacob end up doing? He ends up blessing Egypt, which is really weird. It's like this old man coming to, uh, it's like this little old man from, what's a really small country that we barely know about? Like this little old man from Chad coming to the White House and putting his hand on Joe Biden's head, you know, and, and saying, I bless you and, and I'm giving you power. That's what happens at the end of the, um, that probably doesn't do justice to the, what happens, but Jacob is the one who blesses uh, Pharaoh. When Jacob dies, the leaders of Egypt actually go back with him to the promised land, and the Canaanites are, who are there see everybody crying, and they say the Egyptians are mourning over the death of Jacob. Um, one scholar explains, this is part of what makes this, the next Pharaoh who's in Exodus so evil, because he had a good example in the Pharaoh there with Joseph. He knew how to relate. He, he had history of how to relate to Israel in a way that would bring him blessing, but he didn't care. But one scholar explains, through Joseph, Yahweh blesses the nations. Potiphar appoints Joseph as a steward over his house, then God blesses Potiphar. Later we find Joseph established over the house of Pharaoh. The result is the same. Jo Joseph blesses the nations by providing grain during a severe famine, first for Egypt, then for all the earth. God uses Joseph to fulfill his promise to multiply Abraham's seed. Once Joseph settles his family in Goshen, the family of Abraham is fruitful and multiply. The words fruitful and multiply occur throughout Genesis, but this instance is unique. Previously, God has either commanded people to be fruitful and multiply or promised they will be so. But now with Joseph for the first time, fruitfulness and multiplication is a reality. Under Joseph's leadership, Abraham's seed flourishes. Even the kingship promise comes to fruition with Joseph. Forecasting Joseph's place and in the Egyptian court, Joseph's dreams anticipate his royal position. Even his coat of many colors is royal garb. At the beginning of Genesis 37, readers have awaited prophetically by promise the arrival of a royal seed through the line of Abraham. Now in the opening verses of the book's final section, Joseph's introduction heightens that anticipation. Readers who remember these promises cannot help but ask, are you the one who is to come or, we should, or should we expect another. So Joseph becoming king is a uh, result, really, of a promise God made to Abraham and is a picture of a new Adam who is mediating God's blessing to the nations, a beloved son and a servant king. But of course, we know at the end of Genesis that Joseph is not going to be enough because he dies and they're not in the promised uh, land. And that's a way that Moses makes clear, Joseph is just a picture. And we know, of course, that picture is going to be fulfilled in Christ. Joseph gives a picture of God doing through a man what Adam was supposed to do, and that is rule and bring blessing to the world as a kind of king. And the rest of the Old Testament is going to help us understand that picture better. But it starts here in Genesis with this theme of king and kingdom. Another theme, a uh, third theme, is uh, tabernacle. So kingdom, king, 
tabernacle. And uh, by tabernacle, I mean God's home on earth. So the place where God dwells on earth. And it might sound strange to say tabernacle is a theme of Genesis, uh, but I think you need to say tabernacle and kingdom of God are themes of Genesis to get the full picture of what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. So we looked at Genesis 1 as a picture of God exercising his kingship and identifying someone to rule on his behalf, but for what? What was God intending to do? There's someone named Michael Morales who puts it like this. He says, Genesis 1 to 2 is like a prologue to the drama of the Pentateuch, which is about how is God going to dwell with man again, or how is man going to dwell with God again? So the question the Pentateuch is answering is how is God going to get us back in the garden, basically? How is God going to dwell with man again? And actually, it's really interesting. Genesis and Deuteronomy have a lot of similarities. Exodus and Numbers have a lot of similarities. Leviticus is kind of the, the center, the heart of the Pentateuch. And that's really what Leviticus is all about. In fact, the, the center chapter of the, of the Pentateuch is Leviticus 16, which is about the Day of Atonement. Which kind of answers how is God going to be able to live with man again. But um, the first chapter gives us a picture of what life in this world is supposed to be like. And Morales says one way it does that this is by portraying the universe as God's house and the Sabbath day's communion with God as the goal for humanity. So this is interesting, and we've said it before, but think about Israel and the book of Exodus. Um, they're delivered from Egypt. They meet with God. God tells them to build a tabernacle. And why? Like, why? You know, it's pretty amazing, this dramatic deliverance in Exodus, this awesome meeting at Mount Sinai, just, you know, thunder and all this stuff up there. And then Moses meets with God, and God's like, okay, I want you to build a tent. And I'm going to take about, you know, I'm going to take pretty much, uh, let's see, 25 to 31, and then uh, 35 through 40. So how many chapters is that? I'm going to take 10 chapters to describe the building of this tent. And so you're like, what's going on? Well, one way you can understand what's, obviously it's important, <laughs> but what, why it's important. One way you can understand what's going on in the tabernacle is through analogy. So you compare the tabernacle with what was going on with creation. And if you look at the building of the tabernacle in Exodus and the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, there are some real parallels. So like Genesis 1, 2, the spirit of, you find the spirit of God, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So the spirit is there at the beginning of creation. Now look at uh, the tabernacle in Exodus 31, 3, the beginning of the tabernacle. It says, 30, Exodus 31.3, talking about this man named Bezalel, he says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. And basically, he's filled him with the Spirit of God so he can build the tabernacle. And then he says the same thing in case we missed it back in Exodus Next in Exodus 35, verse 31, um, he says, talks about Bezalel, and he says, 
the Lord has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. So at the beginning of the tabernacle, at the beginning of creation, you see the Spirit of God. Um, actually, if you read how creation happened in Proverbs chapter 3 sometime, you'll see Proverbs describes God being like a craftsman, and it says he founded the earth by understanding, by his knowledge the deeps broke open. So you see God's knowledge and understanding at the beginning of creation, and those are the same words that are used to describe the knowledge and intelligence or understanding that he gave to these men to create the tabernacle. Then uh, in Genesis 1, 14 and 15, there's an interesting way that God describes uh, the lights. In Genesis 1, 14 and 15, it says, let there be uh, lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Um, and he's already created the heavens and the earth so the sun and moon are there, but here it's like he turns them on. And the word he uses for light is used everywhere else in the Pentateuch for the lamps in the tabernacle. So uh, the picture is of God um, making the sun and moon like these sacred lamps that were placed in the tabernacle. And that becomes even more compelling when you look at the word for seasons because the word seasons is translated 135, 135 times out of the 160 times you read it is it's referring to the tent of meeting with the other occasions referring to the fixed time of a, a festival. So it never refers, the word seasons never re refers anywhere else in the Pentateuch to the seasons of the year, but it only refers to like when they had Passover or when they had um, a special festival. And so it's like in Genesis 1, the picture is of the sun and the moon. Their main purpose is for helping people know when to worship God. Um, that's what it means for them to rule the day and the night. It's like they've been placed there to help people know how to worship God. And that's a little more abstract for us as we look at God creating the heavens and the earth. But for the people who had seen the, seen the tabernacle, there's going to be parallels. As Moses describes creation, they know there are these lamps in the, in the tabernacle, and he uses the same word to talk about the sun and, and the moon. And so when they read Genesis 1, it's like they're watching the first tabernacle being built by God. And that's confirmed in other places. When the Bible talks about creation, and you see it describes it like that. In Psalms and Isaiah, it talks about God stretching out the heavens and the earth like a tent. Psalm, listen to Psalm 104. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you're very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. And you know, as the psalmist talks about creation, it makes it sound like God's building a house and he, as he uses the word like tent and chamber. And sometimes people are like, oh, they didn't know how the universe works, so they're just talking like this. No, this is poetry. And the word uh, chamber is used for a special room in someone's house. And the word tent is the word for tabernacle. So one author explains, the tabernacle in which God dwelt with Israel was enclosed with a tent covering stretched out across its top. And in this psalm, God stretches out the heavens as a covering, pitching a tabernacle tent across the world where he wants to dwell with humanity. God supports the world with pillars like those that held up the tabernacle and the temple. 
He sets the earth upon secure foundations as Solomon erected the house of the Lord upon a massive and costly foundation stones. The temple included upper chambers overlaid with gold, and indeed the Lord lays beams for his upper chamber upon the waters above the firmament. When the Bible describes creation like a house, that's because creation is a house. It's a house for the Lord, a temple or tabernacle for God to abide with his people. We see that in the, in the psalm, but we also get a picture of it in Genesis 1. God is portrayed in Genesis 1 as a workman who builds his house. He, he looks at his house. He pronounces his, his work good, and then he takes up his Sabbath rest um, in the house. The house is like a tabernacle. And so there are all these other connections as well that are kind of fun, like... Um, the seven-day structure of creation is mirrored by the tabernacle instructions in Exodus 25 through 31. So when God, when God gives the speeches to Moses to um, build the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 31, you know how many different speeches he gives? Seven. Uh, and you know what he talks about in the seventh speech, Exodus 31, 12 through 17? Keeping the Sabbath. So creation and the tabernacle seem to move towards this similar purpose of enjoying the Sabbath with God. It's interesting, too. How long did it take God to create the world? Six days. How long does Moses wait up on the mountain before God calls to, to him to speak to him and give him the instructions about the tabernacle? Six days. And if you fast forward to the completion of the tabernacle, what you see is that God uses really similar language to describe Moses and what happened at the end of the tabernacle that he used to describe what happened uh, in creation. So listen to Exodus 39, 43, the very end of the tabernacle, it says, and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. And of course, Genesis 1, 31, God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39, 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. Genesis 2, 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Exodus 40, 33, Moses finished his work, Genesis 2, 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work, Exodus 39, 43. Moses blessed them, uh, Genesis 2, 3. So God blessed the seventh day. So there's this parallel, and that's for teaching. The creation helps you understand the tabernacle, and the tabernacle helps you understand the creation. So the purpose of the tabernacle is... Uh, related to the purpose of the universe, which is humanity dwelling in the divine presence and worshiping and enjoying him on, on the seventh day, really. If you look back at Genesis 1, everything leads to the seventh day. So Genesis 1 begins with a seven-word sentence. Genesis 1-1 is seven words. The account is told through seven paragraphs in Hebrew. The seventh day, when you read about it, is given a threefold emphasis. It's repeated, what it says about the seventh day is repeated three times. The seventh day is the only day not paired with another day. It is uh, the first day to be blessed. It's actually a day, the first thing to be uh, blessed. It's the first object to be set apart. Oh, it's the first object to be set apart as holy to God. I guess man was blessed by God, but the, the Sabbath day is the first object to be set apart as holy to God. And that's because the goal for, uh, the goal for creation, really, and the goal for humanity is, is related to the seventh day. <laughs> um, that's also probably why there's no morning and there's no evening. 
on the Sabbath day because uh, the plan was for it to always be like one long seventh day enjoyment of God forever. And that's just Genesis 1. If you move to Genesis 2, you see this idea of a tabernacle even more clearly. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 are obviously, you read them back to back, they're, uh, they're different. They're, they're both about what happens at creation, but uh, Genesis 1 is seven days. Genesis 2 is one day. Genesis 1 calls God Elohim. Genesis 2 calls God Yahweh. Genesis 1 is about God's word. God said, and it was. That's how he created. In Genesis 2, he's forming man out of the dust of the ground. Genesis 1 says it was good, it was good, it was good. Genesis 2 says, God says something's not good. There's no Garden of Eden in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 is all about the garden. And sometimes people get flustered by the differences, but obviously Moses, who wrote this, knew there were differences. So there's a, there's a purpose. And Genesis 1 is just like this broad, sweeping overview. And then Genesis 2 is zoning in on one particular day in creation and showing you more specifically God's plan for man. And I think the analogy of the tabernacle is helpful for understanding what God's doing with the Garden of Eden. So in the tabernacle, you have these three areas. You have the outer courtyard, you have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies. And that's kind of what you have on on the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. You have the outer courtyard, you have the world in general, then you have the holy place, Eden, and then you have the holy of holies, the Garden of Eden. And that... I think is true, but it, it might be stretching it a little. It, it might be too specific. But there's a lot of reason, at least for sure, for thinking of the Garden of Eden, at the very least, as designed to give you a picture of the future tabernacle. So there's a lot of parallels. I don't know if this is fun for you, but let me read you some of these parallels. The Garden of Eden is characterized by the presence of God. The text talks about God walking back and forth in the garden. This same phrase is used later to describe God's presence in the Holy of Holies. When humans were cast out of Eden, cherubim were stationed to the east of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. This clearly indicates that the entrance to the garden was on the east side. Like the Garden of Eden, the entrances to the tabernacle and temple were always on the east side and were guarded by uh, cherubim statues. In the center of the garden in, in Eden is the tree of life. Similarly, in the tenor of the tabernacle and the temple was the menorah, which is a stylized tree of life. Um, the responsibility and task given to Adam in the garden is to serve it and to keep it, or to work it and to keep it. The only other passages where those, those two words are used in the Pentateuch um, describe the job of the Levites in the temple or tabernacle. Um, those words are used later in the Old Testament for worship. So Adam is portrayed as a kind of Levite who fulfills his task by maintaining the priority of worship. Um, according to Genesis 2.10, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. This river brings life to the entire world. Um, Ezekiel 47 describes a great river flowing out of the temple in the New Jerusalem. Um, the river giving life to the garden divides it into four as it issues from Eden. Since water flows downhill, this fact clearly indicates that Eden was in an elevated place. Um, in the ancient Near East, temples were situated on mountains. In Ezekiel 28, Eden is described and portrayed as a mountain. Um, anyway, the, the, 
the garden as a place of divine decrees. After placing man in the garden, God gave commands to the man there. Um, the ark in the center of the inner room of the Holy of Holies was the footstool of God's throne, and of course the law of God was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden was recognized as pleasant to the sight, good for food, and to be desired to make one wise. These characteristics are echoed by Psalm 19 about the law, which makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, and enlightens the eyes. So as you read uh, the beginning of Genesis, it's almost like you're getting a hologram of what God designed the world to be like. And it's like this kingdom with man serving as kings, representatives of God, and it's like a tabernacle with us serving uh, as his priests. And of course, we're not in the garden now. Man got cast out, and that's another theme of Genesis, which we'll talk about uh, next time, and that's the idea of exile. So we got through three of the main themes of Genesis. There's a few more. Uh, Exile, seed, conflict. Um, No, I have exile twice. Promise, blessing, king, uh, the goodness of God, the unstoppable goodness of God, faith, and faith. And then um, we'll uh, look at those themes and then talk about the structure of Genesis, how he goes about telling his story, which I think is really um, interesting and exciting as well. But uh, next week we're going to do something a little different. And um, Isaiah is going to be here, and we're going to. I'm going to ask if if you're able to do this. This would be great. If you're not able to do it, you're still going to be blessed. But it really would be helpful if you do it. There, uh, Will has um, going to send out an email, I think, that has the notes and then also a resource. And this resource is a lecture by a guy named Abner Chow called. It's uh, the lecture is called "Cutting It Straighter." So. Um, and it's about how to benefit from how how to benefit from reading the Bible, and it's an amazing, amazingly helpful forty-minute uh, lecture. And what I'd like you to do, if you can, is listen to that, and then uh, Isaiah will lead you in some type of discussion of that uh, next time or uh, something related uh, to that. But I think, I think it will be uh, really, I, I've been so helped by that particular uh, lecture, and I think you will be as well. Any thoughts or uh, comments or ideas or questions? Right, but just remember, there's always more there. Um, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking and praying. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for this time. We just pray uh, that we're just little children, Lord. You're our great Father. There's so much for us to know and understand and to enjoy. We pray that we would know this book well, not just to be sort of, you know, try to be fancy and say deep words, but because we want to know you. We want to have a relationship with you. We look at this this as uh, your letter to us, It's our food. Lord, we just pray, keep these hearts pumping spiritually. Keep them alive spiritually. Keep them desiring you spiritually. Keep them, Lord, help us to hear your word as you speaking to us and to love it, not just because it's interesting stories and, oh, it's so uh, fascinating how this is like that and this is like that, but because 
this is, uh, this is our God speaking to us, and you love us, and you, you saved us, and you want us to walk with you. Please help us, Lord. We're so quick to, to forget, just like the Israelites. We're so stubborn. It was, it was just easy to, it's easy for us to complain and to get confused, like the disciples even, who had your word and were missing the point. We don't want to be like that, Lord. Please, uh, please help us. Please help us know you, love you, and love other people, and live our life in a way that makes you happy, Jesus. And uh, we thank you that you are the, great, the greater Joseph, the greater Adam. You're the one the whole Bible points to, and you've accomplished salvation for us. And one day we will see you rule. Uh, you're the great king priest who did what Adam could not do. And even better than Joseph, you're going to live forever and uh, bring this whole world into submission to your authority. And we can't wait. And we pray this in your name. Amen.